This is episode number 69 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We're broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media we hear at the Individual One Podcast, have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. As always, please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter, at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Well, today was a very, very big day in the uh, presidency of Donald Trump. Finally, after uh, basically almost two years, after I had predicted that this would eventually happen, official impeachment proceedings have begun in their public phase Uh, within the House of Representatives and the Intelligence Committee. And it seems it's very clear that Donald Trump is, in fact, going to eventually be impeached, probably within the next month or two. Correct. Uh, Whether or not he will be removed from office is a completely, entirely different story. Uh, The uh, anticipation has been from those who are still holding out hope that people will do the right thing. And by the way, uh, never count on people doing the right thing, especially when it's not in their self-interest to do so in any endeavor, but especially in politics and especially in 2019, where we're living in this bizarre era controlled by the Trump cult. Uh, But I digress. The people who have been hoping against hope that the, the right thing might still be done have always pinned those expectations or those dreams, those fantasies on the idea that once public impeachment hearings began, that once the public attention span was focused on the actual allegations and the evidence against Trump on on numerous uh, elements of this Ukrainian scandal, that somehow a light bulb was going to go off on a large enough percentage of the American people's heads uh, to convince Republicans, at least enough Republicans, to peel away from Trump in a way that could threaten to allow him to be removed once this impeachment goes to a Senate trial. If you have listened to this podcast before, you know I am not in that category. In fact, I have debated many people. I have friends who have have passionately debated me that, hey, John, eventually the right thing is going to happen here, that this is going to be somewhat of a a redo of what happened with Watergate and that Nixon's approval ratings were fairly high and support for him was solid up until televised impeachment hearings. And then it evaporated and Barry Goldwater, a Republican senator from Arizona, former presidential candidate, uh, kind of if you put in in terms of today's world, he would be Mitt Romney, although obviously personality wise, they were completely different. But from the standpoint of being a past Republican uh, presidential candidate who is currently in the U.S. Senate. Goldwater went to Nixon and said, sorry, it's over, uh, Richard Nixon, Mr. President, uh, you got to go. That's not going to happen because, first of all, if Romney ever did that, he wouldn't even be allowed in the room uh, because Trump would go tell him to go screw himself. Uh, uh, And he would be able to tell him to go screw himself because uh, no one else is going to follow Mitt Romney in the Senate, or at least not enough senators to get to the two thirds needed to remove him from office. Part of why I have uh, debated with my friends who claim that this might 
actually happen. And these are, by the way, uh, these are conservatives, some of them. Some of them, One of them in particular, with whom I've had a, a, a two-year-long debate about this, mostly via text message, happens to be a conservative who works for a essentially a state-run media organization, a pro-Trump media organization. Now, they've kept this all uh, very clandestine, uh, but they have been hoping against hope that these public hearings would change everything. And I keep telling that person, look, and by, we, by the way, we even have a bet, which we doubled. We have a bet that uh, they believe that Trump will be uh, removed from office by the end of the year. I say, no, that's never going to happen. I've been saying that since we made the bet, which was, I think, at the beginning of the year or the end of last year. Yeah, it was actually the end of last year. And, um, and I feel very confident I'm going to win the bet, which is why I doubled the bet uh, uh, earlier in the year. Um, but their hope is that the American attention span will be focused on this enough to change minds. And that's where we differ, because I don't believe the American attention span has the capability of being focused on something that's fairly complex and largely theoretical. Look, I'm as outraged as anybody by President Trump's overt actions to leverage U.S. military aid to get a foreign ally to act on his political behalf by making stuff up about a political opponent in Joe Biden. That's outrageous. But for the average person, there's there's nothing that impacts their life here. In fact, as it turns out, there's nothing that even impacted it directly, although indirectly this, it had the same effect. There's nothing that that uh, overtly says that this even happened. So this was this was a a burglary, if you will, that got uh, botched, much like the Watergate burglary, <laughs> where there was no actual theft. Uh, although I would argue that Joe Biden has been harmed by this because just the stench of the story itself and the fact that Republicans have now run with that stench, even though it's not based in an actual investigation by the Ukrainian government. And it's also important to point out for a factual standpoint, and this has become more and more clear during today's proceedings already, Trump was not even asking Ukraine for an actual investigation of some sort of Biden-related corruption. Correct. He just wanted an announcement that that's what Ukraine was doing. Correct. Because if he had the announcement, that's all he needed. Because you know, details don't matter, facts don't matter, reality doesn't matter. All he wanted was the talking point, and then his his state-run media could run with that and create all sorts of bullcrap about what was really happening with the Bidens in Ukraine. So he doesn't need the actual investigation. He just needs to be able to say, the Ukrainian government has opened up an investigation of corruption in Joe Biden. Then that's all you need in, in Trump's world. He has the talking point. So, but there was no actual concern about any alleged or real uh, corruption involving the Bidens. He just wanted the announcement. And he was using military aid to our ally that desperately needed it, aid that had been approved by the Congress of the United States. And he was doing so for his own personal political interest. That's all outrageous. But I don't believe that there's an aha moment that's going to be easily understood to the average American that's going to capture their attention, that's going to make this relevant to their lives. And I was surprised, pleasantly so, that today's testimony involving uh, George Kent and Bill Taylor, two very, very solid Americans uh, who have done so far, what I, from what I can tell, a very good job in their testimony, I was surprised that it has been aired live continuously 
on the major television networks. Now, the major television networks are not nearly as powerful as they used to be, but that is the bare-bones minimum threshold of something that might be taken seriously by the American public. You put it on cable news television, you know what? That's going to have no impact because the only people watching it are the partisans, uh, you know, people that are going to watch MSNBC and CNN are mostly liberal. People that are on Fox are going to watch uh, who are conservatives. They're going to get their spin in either direction. And you're really you're not going to impact or change any significant minds. The, ma- the major ca- uh, television networks, ABC, CBS and NBC, still do have some ability to do that. And I would argue that just by virtue of the fact that these hearings, at least today, and I don't know how long that's going to continue. I'll be very curious about that. But at least today, because it's the first day and I guess they want to, you know, at least pretend that they're being very serious about this whole impeachment proceeding. It it sends a message. I think it sends a, a very clear, it might be somewhat subconscious, but it's a clear message to the average person out there that this is significant. I think we've been trained, especially uh, older adults, you know, people that are I don't know, 40 years or older who have have at least some memory of the old era where ABC, NBC and CBS controlled the world and where there were really only a few television channels. And, it, and, it, and those networks actually had the ability when they wanted to, to essentially force you to to eat your vegetables, if you will, in a, in a news uh, sense, because they controlled almost all of the content. Well, they don't control all the content any by any stretch of the imagination now, because most people have four or five hundred different channels that they can choose from. So if you know, my wife, by the way, I had the impeachment hearings on as I was getting ready for the podcast. I went to go do something. I came back and the television was turned to QVC. Now, uh, during Watergate, my wife would not have had the opportunity to turn the television to QVC. One, because she wasn't born yet, I don't think, but or she, was, she was an infant, but that's a totally different story. The, the, the reality is we're living in a different era now where we have more options. And so while it's nowhere near as significant as it would have been in the 1970s, I do think that there is at least a subconscious message. Hey, this is important. We're putting this live on all of the major television networks. That's good. That at least gives this a shot. That gives us a shot of, of being seen as significant and maybe altering some minds. But I would argue that there are many factors working against that. One of which is most people are too busy. Most, a lot of people are working, obviously, during the day. This is a very hard uh, uh, subject to encompass in one or two Shazam-like uh, sound bites. Uh, I would also argue that uh, we are living in such a partisan era that so few people are open-minded. Most people have already made up their minds. I, I, you know, it's, and I mentioned this before in prior podcasts. It's not a coincidence that the are you in favor of impeachment numbers are, if not totally identical, at least somewhat identical to the numbers. Do you approve or disapprove of Donald Trump's uh, uh, job uh, as president? If you approve of him, you are against impeaching him. If you disapprove of him, you are pretty much in favor of impeaching him or at the least continuing an impeachment inquiry. And we're getting darn near close in some polls to the uh, keep or remove numbers being somewhat at least very similar in some ways to the approved disapproved numbers. That indicates that there's a very small percentage of people. 
There's a very small percentage of people who are actually undecided about this. And those people are not news junkies. Let's face it, they're, you know, they, these are not uh, the brightest bulbs in the chandelier. I love the poorly educated. These are not people that are going to sit down and go, oh, let me spend the next several hours of my life listening to two guys I've never heard of before, George Kent and Bill Taylor, testify in what can sometimes be a rather dry testimony about a country I probably couldn't even find on a map. That's just not going to happen. Now, on the more positive side, if you're one of those people who still holds out hope that maybe, just maybe, uh, the tide could turn and Trump could be removed from office, you don't need that many people. I do believe that if 10% of the people who currently approve of Donald Trump, not 10, but 10 percentage points. People screw that up all the time, and I just did so accidentally. If 10 percentage points of Donald Trump's approval rating, so let's say that he's in the 41, 42% category right now. If if he lost 10% of that and it went over to the pro-impeachment side, he would be in trouble. He couldn't. He might be in grave trouble. And I think that's theoretically possible because I do believe that there's a there's the cult and then there's a softer portion of his support. But even that softer portion is pretty solid and they really still only get their their trusted information from Fox News Channel. So unless until Fox News Channel totally abandons him, unless they start hearing Republicans that they trust, people like Lindsey Graham, who's, you know, put it his hand hands over his ears, doesn't want to hear or see any of this, you know, don't tell me about anything involving this. I made up my mind unless and until that that even that soft support sees Republicans that they trust uh, throwing Trump under the bus. I I don't see that changing. And it's not going to change. You know, look, George Cannon, Bill Taylor are incredibly solid people with remarkable backgrounds. Uh, Every American should honor them. They are very intelligent guys. They have served their country for many, many years honorably. They seem to be telling the truth against their own self-interest. But I'm sorry, we live in a world where optics matter. These are uh, older white guys who are deep staters in the minds of the Trump sycophants. Correct. I mean, George Kent got up there uh, uh, in a bow tie. He's a deep stater in a bow tie. I'm sorry, the average Trump supporter is not going to go, wow, that's the guy that's going to change my opinion of of Donald Trump after all these years. It's just not going to happen, especially over something that there's no end, end result that impacts people's lives. It impacted Ukrainian lives, but unfortunately it appears as if Americans don't seem to give a damn about that, at least not uh, those who are supporters of Donald Trump. So, I would say on the positive side, uh, Kent and Taylor seem to be good choices uh, from the substance perspective. They've done a good job. Uh, The major networks have covered this live and continuously. That's all good. The Republicans, of course, on the Intelligence Committee have completely embarrassed themselves. Correct. Uh, And this was not surprising, yet it was still jarring to see. Uh, Before the hearing ever began, uh, all these nut jobs, including uh, Jim Jordan, who I have unfortunately supported on this bogus Ohio State wrestling scandal that he's been implicated in, 
Uh, you know, he will do anything now. I, lo- I believe because Trump supported him in that scandal. And Joe Walsh and I talked about this in our in the last uh, edition of the Individual One podcast. I truly believe that's why Jim Jordan has completely and totally humiliated himself now, willing to jump on any hand grenade that might be uh, dangerous to Donald Trump, all because uh, he believes that's his job now. He has to repay Donald Trump for saving his bacon last year during an election season when he was falsely implicated in that Ohio State story. But the things that that Jordan was doing, and a couple of even more respected Republicans on that committee, Devin Nunez, who's a con- total conspiracy nut job, the things that they were doing were just it's just flat out ridiculous. And it's embarrassing. It's humiliating, and it's and it sends an incredibly important message to a person of even average intelligence, which is that Republicans don't want you to hear from the people testifying. They, they want you to look over here to this distraction or that distraction. Uh, and there's nothing substantive. It's all bull crap. It's all nonsensical. Uh, but if they scream and yell, you know, it's the, you know, the, like any uh, the defense lawyer will tell you, you know, if you don't have anything else, you just pound on the table. And that's what they're doing. They're just pounding on the table, screaming, yelling, trying to distract from the actual issues. Because when you look at the actual issues, it's very, very clear what happened here now. This was an organized effort over an extended period of time involving numerous people that involved an ambassador uh, to the Ukraine getting fired, uh, that that involved an underground diplomacy by Rudy Giuliani that made it clear that there was an extortion attempt on the Ukrainian president, all to get him to announce this investigation of the Bidens. I still believe that part of this involved the Roger Stone trial, potentially, at least in Trump's uh, distorted mind. I'll get to Roger Stone momentarily. But it's very obvious. The the evidence is going to be overwhelming. The evidence is going to be overwhelming that this happened. And, uh, you know, I wish that people would at least try to make the argument And I've seen a little bit of it in the testimony where they're talking about our national security interest being at stake here. That's pretty theoretical. Uh, And unfortunately, people don't seem to respond to to theoretical problems, uh, at least not in a dramatic way. There's another theoretical problem that I don't think is being addressed enough. And and that is that think about this, folks. Think about what Trump was doing in his stupidity when he made attempted to make this deal with the Ukrainian government. Obviously, on their end, there was a tape of this conversation, right? So Ukraine has a tape of this conversation. They probably have tapes of numerous conversations. They have documentation of people trying to extort them. Let's say Joe Biden ended up being the Democratic nominee, right? Even if he wasn't, this would still be a problem. But let's just pretend we're in the year 2000 now. And Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee going up against Donald Trump. As we head into that campaign, the president of the United States, because he went into this extortion scheme against Ukraine, would make himself extremely vulnerable to reverse blackmail by Ukraine. Think about it. Let's, I mean, so he's, had, he's in the middle of a campaign, right? Think about this, folks. This is really important. He's in the middle of a presidential campaign against Joe Biden. Ukraine has him by the balls because now with him facing reelection, they can reveal to the world that that, that Trump extorted them into a fake 
out, uh, uh, investigation of Joe Biden for his own political purposes. That is a huge problem in a general election campaign. And Ukraine would now all of a sudden hold all the cards, especially if it looked like Joe Biden was going to be president. And therefore, in the future, they were going to need to rely on him for future military aid. So why why those who are trying to make this case that this matters uh, haven't tried to go down that path, at least not that I've heard, is a mystery to me. To me, Trump has done this numerous times. He did it with Russia with regard to the the Trump-Moscow Tower situation. He did it with the National Enquirer in a way that has not gotten nearly enough attention. He took the oath of office, Trump did, knowing, knowing that a terrorist organization called the National Enquirer tabloid had leverage over him because they had a safe of damaging information about him. That, to me, is astonishing. Because the National Enquirer, and I, I have suspicions, I have no proof at all, but I have suspicions that some of what might have happened during the Trump administration was because the National Enquirer uh, either sold some of that information or sold the possibility of some of that information to foreign governments. But what would have stopped the National Enquirer from doing that? They've got all the leverage and 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 Trump is compromised by that. That should matter to people. I realize it takes a little bit of thinking, a little bit of dot connecting, but it's not that difficult. And yet I, I never hear anybody talking about this. Uh, to me, the most uh, interesting thing that's happened so far today, at least as far as I can tell, because I was preparing for the for this podcast, which we tape mid-morning here in the Los Angeles, California area, was actually something that was not part of the testimony. But instead, it was a uh, an appearance by George Conway, who's a Republican lawyer, who more importantly happens to be married to Kelly and Conway, one of the closest advisors to Donald Trump, made his first television appearance uh, since all this saga began. He did so on MSNBC. He was interviewed by an, another former Republican operative named Nicole Wallace. So here they are on the liberal network, MSNBC, George Conway and Nicole Wallace. And Conway uh, talks in general terms about this impeachment, why it's important, and listen to how emotional he gets about uh, why this is so significant and the dangers to the country and why it is that Trump needs to be impeached and then makes a really important point at the end about how Republicans are reacting in comparison to how they would have responded if all of this happened during a Barack Obama administration. When you become president, you raise your right hand and you swear to faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. And also the Constitution provides, it uses that word, word those words faithfully execute um, in reference to faithfully execute the laws. And when you take on that duty, and the framers really took oath seriously, you are promising to take that awesome power that's being thrust upon you and use it for the nation's benefit and not for your own benefit. And the problem with Donald Trump is he always sees himself first. Trump is all about Trump. And that's why it was inevitable he'd get himself into the soup once again. And that's what, that's what this is all about. He's using 
the, he was using the power of the presidency in its most unchecked area, foreign affairs, mm -hmm. to advance his own personal interests as opposed to the country's. There's emotion in your voice, not when you talk about Donald Trump, but when you talk about the country. What are your concerns about the country? My concern about the country is that so many, I mean, we talked in that op-ed, Neil and I, about the Congress needing to do its duty and the president not doing his. This is about the country, people doing the right thing by the country and not by their party. And this is about telling the truth about what really happened and not about party loyalty. This is about putting the country, the law, truth above partisanship. Are you disappointed that Republicans don't seem to see it that way? I'm horrified. I'm appalled. And it's if you had told me three years ago that it would come to this, I, I, I wouldn't have believed it. Because I don't think, I mean, you, you could not have imagined, I, I don't think I could have imagined a president, any president, um, engaging in this sort of conduct. If you're alone with a Republican, you spent your career in Republican legal causes. You now are bosom buddies with Neil Patel. Um, <laughs> Who'd have thunk? <laughs> but the arguments you make aren't political. So what, what is the case to the Republicans you've known your whole professional life? Well, the case is take that Republican hat off and look at it neutrally. Or look at it, look at what you would have done if Donald Trump were a Democrat. Would you, would you be making these ridiculous arguments about process, about, uh, about uh, what, what, think of the other arguments that they're making that, oh, he's, he's just It was a quid pro quo, was, but Zelensky quo, didn't know it. Right, he didn't know it, or, or it wasn't corrupt. He was really talking about corruption. I mean, all these things that they don't really believe or couldn't possibly believe. I mean, would they, if Barack Obama had done this, they'd be out for blood, and they'd be right. Amen. Absolutely 100%, especially there at the end. Uh, everyone in Washington, D.C. and probably beyond is fascinated by the marriage of George Conway and Kellyanne Conway. I, I, I am, as a married man myself, I, I am astonished that they are still married. I mean, when you consider she is one of Trump's biggest sycophants and she's working for him and Trump knows that the number one reason why the news media gives George Conway as much weight as they do is because he's married to Kellyanne Conway. And, uh, you know, my gosh, I have difficulty when my wife occasionally shows signs of having the Trump virus, which she does have. I mean, her whole family is very strong Trump supporters. She's not a full-on Trump supporter, but she clearly has a little bit of the virus. I have to keep it uh, contained at times. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't know how we would be able to to live with each other. And we have two young children and I'm, not, you know, <laughs> I'm not George Conway and she doesn't even you know, work for President Trump, uh, obviously. So it's just astonishing to me that they're able to make this work. Uh, you know, boy, um, you know, th their tell all book at the end of this is going to be uh, fascinating stuff. But more importantly, what George Conway said there is absolutely correct. And uh, I hope 
that at least some Republicans will take it to heart. They should, considering his position of credibility, since he's risking his his marriage, not to mention his lifelong career as a Republican lawyer. But I, I doubt very seriously that that's going to happen. Obviously, we will continue to cover the impeachment hearings as as they go on uh, here on the Individual One podcast. But one of the things that I have tried to point out is that you must see this story of the Ukrainian scandal in the context of the Russian scandal. And I have been uh, frustrated and a little confused as to why there's not been more attention placed on the Roger Stone trial. He is currently uh, undergoing a, a federal trial for a number of charges related to lying to Congress about his uh, involvement in the WikiLeaks leak of Democratic emails that occurred during the 2016 campaign. He is uh, Trump's longtime friend. He at one time was essentially Trump's campaign manager. In fact, he was Trump's campaign manager when that whole campaign began back in 2015. He is uh, well known as a longtime Republican dirty trickster. And uh, to me, in order to fully understand what Trump was doing in Ukraine, you have to see it through the prism of this all occurred the day after Robert Mueller's dreadful testimony, uh, which happened back in July of this year. The very next day is when the call with the Ukrainian president occurred. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. And it, the context here is incredibly important because Trump thinks he's dodged the bullet because Mueller crapped the bed. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. And so here he is doing exactly the same thing all over again. He now feels like he's got free reign. He did it in 2016. He got away with it. Now he's going to do the same thing in 2020. And I believe, and I've said this many times, that Mueller really didn't just crap the bed in his testimony. I think he was Trump's best friend when it came to the actual investigation. Now, obviously, Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein uh, were blocking for Trump. They muted the, the report. They, they ran circles around Mueller with regard to the PR. Mueller was incredibly naive. But I still take issue even with how much benefit of the doubt Mueller was willing to give to Trump, especially when it came to his written answers, which he called inadequate. Now, Mueller calling the written the written written answers of the president of the United States inadequate after he had promised to do an interview for Mueller should have been a scandal in and of itself. And maybe Mueller thought it would be, but it got completely lost. I don't I doubt very many Americans even realize that that's what happened. Well, we're learning a lot of stuff in this Roger Stone trial that to me, one furthers this narrative that has been discredited that there actually was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. And specifically, it seems pretty damn obvious that Trump lied to Mueller when he said on numerous occasions that he didn't remember events. One of those events that he didn't remember involved, that he said to Mueller he didn't remember, involved knowledge of Stone procuring the WikiLeaks email. Yesterday's testimony was devastating on this in the Roger Stone trial. Here's the Washington Post. They report Rick Gates, who served as Trump's deputy campaign chairman. Okay, right there. Rick Gates, who served as Trump's deputy campaign chairman, testified 
that Stone began discussing Clinton leaks with the campaign in April 2016, and that from May onward, Gates understood Stone to be the campaign's intermediary with WikiLeaks. Now, remember, you got to understand, WikiLeaks is essentially Russia. Right? That, that, those are essentially synonymous terms in this context. By July 2016, Gates testified, Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort said he was updating Trump and others regularly and directed Gates to keep following up with Stone. Let me repeat that. Manafort said he was updating Trump and others regularly and directed Gates to keep following up with Stone. After Trump ended one phone call from Stone at the end of that month, Gates testified. The future president said to Gates that, quote, more information would be coming. Trump claimed to have no memory of any of this. That's bullshit. Correct. He perjured himself. He perjured himself on numerous occasions in those written answers, and Mueller failed to, he didn't charge him, I guess because he didn't think he was allowed to, but he really didn't even make that a major part of his report. He let him off the hook. The answers were inadequate. I think he thought that somehow the Congress would do what they want with it. Maybe they would charge him with perjury, but he did a lousy job of making that clear. And in my opinion, he should have made a public fight about this. He should have subpoenaed the president. Yes, it would have delayed things, but Trump's answers on this were everything. Bill Clinton got impeached for perjury. Donald Trump, perjury is something people understand. And especially after Trump had promised to do an interview with with Mueller, I think from a political standpoint, that would have been very damaging to Trump. Yes, it would have delayed things. Who knows what the Supreme Court would have said. But at the very least, doing the subpoena fight, which he could have abandoned at some point, once that becomes public, that Trump is fighting to not, he's fighting in court with his own appointees supporting him, fighting in court to keep from having to answer questions, that would have eroded, I believe, Trump's ability to get away with this. The average Americans would have gone, wait a minute, hold on. You promised to do an interview. Now you're fighting in court to not do an interview. And now you provide written answers where you're saying, I think it's 37 times or something, some ridiculous number, that you don't remember things when you claim to have the greatest memory in the world. And these are clearly memorable events. So uh, this is just another area where I think Mueller really blew it. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. And where uh, it's obvious that uh, he was either intimidated, he lost his balls, uh, he was too by the book, he was too naive, a combination of all those things. I don't know. But the, the biggest lie, the biggest of many lies in the entire Russian investigation is that somehow Mueller was on a witch hunt. He was on the opposite of a witch hunt. He actually gave Donald Trump every possible benefit of the doubt, and we learned more about that at the Stone trial uh, yesterday. I want to make a couple other points about the things that have gone on in the periphery of this. 
the former U.N. ambassador, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, somebody who never Trumpers like myself used to really respect, has been doing the rounds on, on an interview uh, for uh, interviews for a book that she has out. And she has made an astonishing, astonishing and so many levels uh, allegation, I guess you would call it, although she kind of bragging about it that uh, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, came to her, came to her in an effort to turn her publicly against Trump to try to save the country. Correct. And she turned them down. Now, this is a remarkable uh, revelation, assuming it's true, on its face, that, that Kelly and Tillerson were doing this. I, it doesn't surprise me that they would be doing this. But that they would be doing this should be massive news that every American should know about. But that won't be the case because we don't live in that world. But the more amazing part of this is she's bragging about it. She wants Trumpsters to know this happened. And look, see, I didn't take the bait. I maintain my support for Trump, even in the face of this pressure from old white guys who were too wimpy to support our president. Correct. That's her narrative. And this is somebody who's not been thought of as a, as a super Trump sycophant. This is somebody who, during the 2016 campaign, stood up against Trump and supported Marco Rubio before the South Carolina primary uh, against Trump, who made numerous statements that were uh, uh, criticism, strong criticisms of Donald Trump. This is somebody who a lot of people thought you know, had a really great shot to be the next Republican presidential candidate. Maybe she still does. She's making the political calculation that you have to support Trump at all costs and that in the long run, the the anti-Trump people are both too small a group and they will eventually forgive and forget that eventually this is all, you know, all's fair and love and war. I had to do what I had to do because he was our president. He was under attack from the mean, nasty Democratic Socialists, and therefore I did the right thing. Uh, I don't know how that's all going to play out, but I do know that it's disgusting. It's disappointing, and unfortunately it's all too common among people who, for whom I used to have at least some respect on the Republican side, but Nikki Haley is no longer in that category. Uh, I don't usually talk about uh, the podcast itself because, frankly, you know, there's not that much to talk about in that realm, at least not yet. But uh, the podcast got a nice shout out in a in a review of uh, Trump related impeachment podcasts. This was done by a writer by the name of David Litsky for uh, a website called Fast Company. He did a he very did a very extensive review of all of the Trump-related impeachment podcasts, and this one was prominently mentioned. Uh, David wrote, I'll admit that I did not initially think that there'd even be right-wing impeachment podcasts, but they are, there are, and they're fantastic. And then he writes, veteran right-wing talker John Ziegler is a never-Trumper, and his Individual One podcast offers a highly engaging, rather clear-eyed, clear-eyed assessment of what's happening. I couldn't find a podcast devoted to impeachment from a leftist perspective, but if I had, I think it shares Ziegler's dark fatalism about the whole affair. Trump will be impeached by the House, and none of it will matter. Plus, kudos to anyone who can monologue for almost an hour twice a week and hold a listener's attention. Correct. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it was nice to hear. Uh, ours was not the uh, podcast that he liked best of all. That was ironically hosted by Steve Bannon, not because he agreed with uh, Steve Bannon, the former 
uh, chief campaign strategist for, for Donald Trump, but just simply because of the entertaining aspect of Bannon doing everything he possibly can to support and defend Trump in this entire impeachment saga. But I figured that was at least worth a short mention. Politically, I think the most interesting thing that's happened in the last few days is that there's a new poll out in Georgia, in Georgia, where Trump is head-to-head against um, the major Democratic candidates. And in Georgia, now this is just one poll, and Georgia, you know, is, is not the largest state, but it's an important state. It's a red state. It's been turning more purple. But Trump is losing to everybody. He's getting clobbered by Joe Biden in Georgia. That's a big problem if you're the Republican presidential nominee. I mean, Georgia? You cannot be serious! If the Republican Party's really going to lose Georgia, then everything that I've talked about with regard to electability is irrelevant. Because if they're going to lose Georgia, then there's a a blue tide, and they're going to lose North Carolina— uh, they're gonna, uh, you know, they're gonna have to struggle like hell to hold Ohio and Texas, uh, Florida. I mean, everything's in play if this is true. Now, that's a big if, uh, but if that's true, then and I've talked about this. I've talked about that all these theories of electability and the dangers of Warren and Buttigieg and Sanders. And Sanders isn't going to be the nominee, I don't think. But the whole whole reason why I have been supportive of Joe Biden as being the Democratic candidate, even though I don't like him and I think he's got major problems and he's way more left than I am, is that he beats Trump. That's that. But I, if if this Georgia poll is true, then we might be underline might be in a situation where anybody under the current circumstances would beat Trump. Uh, now, there's a lot that can happen in the next year. He's going to go through impeachment. We don't know how exactly that's going to play politically. It could go in either direction or it might not have that much impact, believe it or not, considering the strangest, strangeness of the world in which we now live. But the economy is doing well. Uh, the stock market is at record highs. And for uh, Trump to be losing Georgia is really startling, again, if it's true. While there's still a long way to go, there appears to be vindication of my prediction that Pete Buttigieg is going to make a major move in the Democratic nominating process and specifically in Iowa. I said to you about a month ago that I now think that Buttigieg was the favorite to win Iowa. There's a new poll out in the last couple of days that show Buttigieg is winning Iowa. Now it's only by a couple points and the numbers in Iowa can change rather dramatically. Uh, One, because the population is not that large, and two, because it's a caucus. And the number of people that actually go to the caucuses on a cold night in February is really pretty small, so the percentages can change dramatically in a short period of time. But I do see that Buttigieg has momentum. He has momentum in New Hampshire, and uh, he has New Hampshire. He has a, a momentum in Iowa, and I think he's going to be a major player going forward because I think the media is not, uh, you know, I think they've gotten a little tired of Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren's... Uh, a uh, healthcare plan has been panned from an from an economic standpoint and from a uh, uh, not being totally honest perspective. So I see this now as a four-way race for the Democratic nomination with Sanders basically hanging around pretending like he really has a chance when he cannot get uh, in my opinion the nomination. But Warren, Buttigieg, Sanders and Biden right now look like the top 4. Uh, with the you know a significant amount of time between now and when the Iowa caucuses are, we had Joe Walsh on the program in episode number sixty-eight, and boy, he must have had a real big impact uh, via this podcast because he said that Mark Sanford, former governor of South Carolina, did not belong in the race and should drop out. 
Well, a couple days afterwards, guess what happened? Sanford dropped out. So you cannot, you cannot take on the individual one podcast. When, when Joe Walsh calls for Sanford to drop out, obviously the pressure that was induced by that was just too much. And so now it's just Joe Walsh. And I guess you would count Bill Weld in New Hampshire, but he, that's all, that's the only place he's campaigning. And he's, you know, he's former governor of Massachusetts. So he's basically just staying at home, going into New Hampshire every once in a while in a pretty rinky dink campaign. Joe Walsh at least has a, a strategy. It's a long shot, real long shot strategy, but at least has a strategy now of trying to get into a head-to-head matchup with Donald Trump. And that strategy is based in trying to get 20% or more of the vote in Iowa. I told him, which you, I urge you to listen to episode number 68 to hear the entire extensive interview. I told him that that might be optimistic because of the nature of the Iowa caucuses, but at least it's a plan. And now with Sanford out of the race, there's at least a theoretical possibility that Joe might get what he has always wanted, which is Trump head to head in a situation where Trump had to take him seriously and where the media would uh, would portray that race as a legitimate uh, mano a mano situation. Long, long way from there. But uh, at least that's now more theoretically possible now that Sanford has dropped out. As is always the case, we end uh, each edition of the Individual One podcast with an update on the percentages for the uh, two most important things we've been uh, tracking. Number one is whether or not uh, Donald Trump will finish his first term in office. Um, Simply because of the fact that the networks, the major networks, decided to cover the impeachment hearings today in their entirety, at least so far, continuously without commercial interruption. I don't know how long that's going to maintain itself, but if it did, I think that that is a danger for Trump, and the testimony so far has gone very well for the pro-impeachment forces, at least from a substantive standpoint. So I'm going to put that number, I think, at our all-time high. I don't think we've ever gone higher than 15%, but I think there's a 15% chance Trump does not finish, for whatever reason, uh, his first term in office. And I'm going to put, largely because of that Georgia poll, I'm going to put uh, his percentage chances of getting reelected at 40%. So again, please, no wagering, but officially, as of today, 15% chance that he is not uh, able to finish his first term in office, 40% chance he is reelected for another bat crap crazy uh, four years as president of the United States. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual One Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.